Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I'm former double agent and Newsweek editor-at-large, David Jamali. And you're listening to Declassified, brought to you by Newsweek. Declassified is an exploration of what it means to be secure and of the people all over the world who are quietly working to keep us safe. In my career in the intelligence community, I served as a double agent and as an intelligence officer. My goal is to help explain the things that you can see, the proverbial iceberg above the waterline, and let you know what is below it. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Newsweek has begun a brand new reporting project in the foreign affairs and global security realms. It's called Covert China. And as the name describes, it's a long-term effort to uncover the Chinese Communist Party's quiet project to deepen its influence around the world. For more on that project and Newsweek's Covert China series, we're joined by D.D. Kirsten Tatlow, the reporter whose work is at the center of this project. D.D., thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Navid. It's very nice to be here. So let's start with the basics. Um, I want to deep dive into this, but can you give us the high level view of this series of your first um, segment in this series and what your reporting is focused on? Well, so what we're basically trying to do is to um, communicate to the world, if you like, to the U.S., Uh, Something that, as you rightly pointed out in your intro, is really hard to communicate. And that is, what is the Chinese Communist Party and its security services and or its big system of information gathering, spotting, all this stuff it puts into rising, um, doing and how is it doing it? And, And that's really difficult because... You know, it really is something that is at the core of the Communist Party of China, which was born in revolution um, in subterfuge and has never finished those rather secretive, um, covert, if you like, tactics. They're still incredibly important to how the party rules at home and increasingly to how it, well, all along, really, to how it's rising in the world. 
one of the things that fascinates me about China, but also genuinely worries me, and I think is the fact that when it comes to Chinese intelligence efforts, when it comes to sort of these covert uh, efforts on their part, they have almost unlimited resources in terms of uh, people and money. And, you know, we're an open society, uh, Didi. And when it comes to the military here, let's just talk about that for a second. A A lot of people, I don't think, realize that, you know, you think about a an aircraft, right? Like just it doesn't matter what it is, but that aircraft is a, you know, a cumulative effort of, of a number of companies. And we saw this most recently with the solar winds fiasco, with the, with the Russians sort of co-opting um, another company that gave them access to, it still has not been fully you know, made public. But there's this concern, I think, that China is looking to not just suck up you know, U.S. technology, but it would appear that they're also looking um, to use U.S. and other countries' companies as a way to gain access to things here and not just that technology. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you found with that and some of the examples that you came across? Yeah, I mean, that's right. And where the Communist Party of China is different, profoundly, fundamentally different from the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, as it was back in the Cold War, is its emphasis on commercial gain, growth, power, economic power, it really sees, very cleverly, of course, it really sees power as coming from, you know, economic power, what they would then call overhaul, overall comprehensive strategic power comes out of different things, not just having a strong army, but having a powerful economy. And they've really focused on building up that commerce. And it's something that China does really, really well. I mean, as you say, there are a lot of people They are, a lot of them, very busy. Um, They kind of have to be. They're a lot of them under pressure to be busy all the time. You know, officials are rewarded according to how much economic growth they produce, whether in their district or their city or their province. And and it all kind of comes together and produces this incredible mass of very successful activity. Um, But I think, you know, above and beyond that, which is in some ways organic as well, because it's what people do and they're good at doing it, Um, is the planning ability of the party. And there we see very clear plans. I mean, I'll give you an example. Last year, um, Li Keqiang, who's the premier, so that's like a prime minister, said in his work report to the National People's Congress, which is like, you know, a parliament, but it's, uh, you know, has no independent power, um, that China must become what he called, you know, a magnetic um, gravitational center of the world. So basically, China will kind of, we all sort of be sucked into this huge economic power. <laughs> um, and, and that's to do with supply chain issues and stuff. And, and they are really, really thinking that way. So, and they've also very early on the party identified back in 2010. So, I mean, in the greater scheme of things, not that early, but it's good 12 years ago now, that actually what doesn't matter as much as widgets per se when it comes to dominance and economic growth and strategic issues and military issues, but it's talent, human talent. And they really cultivate that. So they really cultivate it at home and they look for it abroad very, very actively. So, I mean, like we have headhunters, you know, companies and stuff, but in China, it's the government doing that and fitting people into plans, into what it wants to spot and bring back home. I think with the, um, we, you know, on this first piece, I picked the Israel situation because it's such a fascinating microcosm. 
of the problems really the countries are having with the US on one side saying don't do this with China you know watch out for that and then the sheer economic you know growth that we've seen in China which admittedly is looking a little ropey these days a little more complicated but that's another issue nevertheless it's still very strong um and you know so you have this almost sort of cognitive dissonance if you like where you've got the security issue of the US being very aware of security and then you've got China's economic potential and attraction and let's do business and let's get commerce going because that stuff is also really really important as as everyone knows and Israel as a um, special ally of the US as a security ally creating defense technologies and being in a very kind of uh, complicated regional situation is really like just um, shows that problem of balancing the US and China really well I think well, you know, one of the things I follow that I think illustrates this very well that I, I maybe some some folks have heard is the Thousand Talents Plan, right? The thousand, this this mm-hmm. idea yeah. that the Chinese um, and look, if you've worked in higher ed or you've worked in Silicon Valley, um, you understand that um, top tier universities, top big companies, Apple, any of these, you know, Google, all these big companies, they're, they're very reliant on foreign uh, talent. And it used to be that... Uh, China, Chinese nationals would come here, would literally get educated, work here, learn what they needed to learn, and then bring that education, that know-how back to China. But there's been a shift, right? Like this is part of, you talk about headhunters and the cultivation of talent. It seems in talking to, you know, people I know that there has been a shift that when we think about places like Wuhan, you know, Wuhan was, and people think of it as the start of where Mm -hmm. COVID started, but it also was a technology center, right? They were, China has now looked at it as saying, we don't necessarily just want people who are coming back to China after they've been in the States and they're in their thirties or Mm forties. We want to get them when they still at the peak of their, you know, their effectiveness. And so part of that is to try to build these, you know, these brain centers and to, as you said, identify talent much, much earlier on and not necessarily have it go to Google first and then come here. Um, But this also does pose a problem. You know, when I talk to some of these big tech companies, they don't want to admit it, but there's a concern about the fact that they have foreign nationals and um, specifically Chinese nationals. And, you know, that that technology, the work that they're working on ends up being shared with China. Can you, you know, can you talk a little bit about like and I want to get to the Israeli part because that's another part of this sort of talent recruitment. You can recruit individuals or you can recruit companies, right? Right. Um, and I, but I want to talk about the individuals and the individuals who come here and this sort of shift. Can you explain that shift and how and what why we should be concerned about it? What are they trying to build? What is China trying to the US with in that? Well, case? this is really complicated, David, because of course everyone wants to be fair. Everyone wants to attract top talent to whether to you know the US or to Canada or to Germany. Um, nobody wants to be accused of racism. And in fact, nobody wants to be racist. That's really, really not what this is about. It's about, very often, it's about nationality and what uh, is your passport and are you vulnerable to pressure from a government such as the government in Beijing? Um, Because, you know, with PRC nationals, they are very certainly, unfortunately, very unfortunately, um, regularly placed under pressure to deliver to Beijing. I mean, Beijing has programs. It's called Serve in Place, where you can go to, say, the US and study you know, nanotechnology. And you can go back to China and bring all your ideas with you and go to a returnee park and craft them and sell them and commercialize them. The de- defense establishment will come along and take them. Um, or... You can say, no, I'm good. I want to stay in the U.S. I like it here. Um, But 
you then do what you call serve in place. And the party's fine with that too. They have a whole system for you to be able to do that too. So you don't have to go back. You can stay overseas. And this was the big shift that took place yeah, about a decade ago, I want to say, um, maybe a little bit more. They began to build up this, you know, um, alternative way of serving your country. The language in China, the language the Communist Party uses is very, it's very sort of atavistic. It's very stirring. It's very sentimental. If you are a son or daughter of the Chinese race, you must serve your country. You must serve the motherland, etc. This type of sort of talk that, you know, a lot of people in kind of liberal societies or open societies or kind of post, you know, um, or certain kinds of societies sort of find a little strange. Why are you talking about my fatherland? You know, why are you talking about my motherland? People find it a little odd. Well, that's completely part of the course, totally normal in China. That's just how the, that's how the government talks and a lot of people think like that. So you've got serve in place, stay overseas. Um, and, you know, they partly did that because they realized that not everyone wanted to go back. And if they said you have to come back after you've acquired your knowledge elsewhere. And here we're talking since about 1978, which is when um, the Chinese government began to push large numbers of talented, intelligent, ambitious students overseas. There have been about six million that have gone um, overseas in total. And um, about half of those have gone back. Some are still studying overseas and some have stayed overseas. Um, you know, that's, that's one of the things they realized was that they might just lose all those brains. They just lose them to America, you know, because there were things that America offered that people wanted in China and couldn't get, for example, the right to buy your own home. And then when you buy your own home to actually own the land on which your home is. Yeah, I mean, you can buy an apartment in China, but the property market currently is collapsing there. That's a whole other story as well. Um, but you can't buy the land. Land all still belongs to the state. That's just one example. Um, so, yeah, they, they're flexible, they're smart. The party came up with this serve-in-place system. And what it's about, this continuous pressure from diplomats, from spokespeople, from maybe even from family members back home who might be working in some kind of position. And I've seen this with my own eyes with young, young kids, you know, very talented ones. It's, at the end of the day, the party would like for talented young Chinese people not to fully assimilate in their country of choice, for example, America, for example, Canada, for example, Germany. They want them to always remember and be loyal to China. So that's why I use that word atavistic. You know, there's something very controlling about this. Now, this creates a huge problem for Chinese people because what if they don't want to keep sending stuff home? What if they don't, what if they do want to fully assimilate? And, you know, there I have huge amount of sympathy. And I think that we need to have this discussion much more openly about, you know, what are their options then? Where are the borders? Where do we need to say, listen, I'm sorry, but you're a PRC citizen. We're going to have to check you, you know, or where do we say, look, no, that's not fair. Um, I, I think these, these are big issues that we still haven't figured out. You know, when I, uh, years ago when I was operational working at Russian intelligence, the, the sort of saying we had, there's a couple of sayings. One is that, um, when it comes to the West, the government works for the people. But when it comes to China, the people work for the government. And I think <laughs> that's absolutely, you know, it, it's it's true. And, and when you think about, you talk about this leave in place, just to put that in perspective, because again, I, I've, I have dealt with this. It's not necessarily, I mean, while it is people literally stealing secrets and flying them, you know, covertly and clandestinely and quite illegally back to China, 
Um, it's things like you take a job, and I'm just using this as an example. This is not a specific, but you take a job at Google, you take a job at Apple. And part of the agreement that you have is that you tell Apple or Google, look, I'm working on nanotechnology, I'm working on AI, I'm working on whatever it might be, data, you know, data science, but I'm also teaching a course back at you know a university in China. And so the company understands that the stuff that you're working on, you're sharing with your university, which of course is essentially giving it back to the Chinese government because you know these all. So it is it, the the challenge. It's exactly it, and and it's and this is the challenge is that these are not so. It's not so clear cut espionage, right? The Chinese are incredibly adept, and when I say the Chinese, we're referring, of course, the government, not the not the people. But the the government is very good at finding ways to manipulate and exploit um, our laws. And I think you're right. It, it look um, the other great example I was told about comparing, you know, Chinese collection efforts versus Soviet collection efforts. I always love this um, is if you compare it to, you know, Soviet like or Russia's you look at their Ukraine, their, their approach to um, taking a beachhead, the the Russians will bombard it and use artillery and planes and ships and and they'll, they'll pulverize it, whereas the Chinese will take it one grain of sand at a time. And, you know, 100 years later, they'll. Right. And 100 years later, they'll, they'll read something entire beach in Beijing. But this is this is the point. So you talk about we're not trying to be you know, this is a legitimate national security question and their tactics are very different. So I, I want to get to Israel and, and sort of you know, their expanded part. But when it comes to Chinese collection efforts, what is the, the right way? Because it, it is I mean, I can't say it. I know the classified number. It is the number of you know, collection efforts the Chinese have going on in the United States at any given moment would make people's like they wouldn't the number is so massive they wouldn't believe it. It's really difficult. And 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 of course the closure of the Houston consulate back in, I think it was last summer, July, um, was directly related to this. There's there's simply no question but that the State Department took the unusual act because it was a domestic closure, like it obviously was a consulate, so it's foreign, but at the same time it happened in the US, still the State Department and I think the Justice Department together um, took the act to, to close the consulate because it was the hub, like the brain of a collection effort across the south, southwest um, of the United States. And um, they were just stunned at you know, how effectively people from the PRC, by which I mean the People's Republic of China, so not Taiwan, obviously, um, were carrying out collection. And then there followed subsequently a lot of, um, you know, interrogations or detentions, if you like, um, of people and some people disappeared. They just went back to China really quickly. Um, but I think that there were, if I don't misremember, there were at least 50-ish um, some of the figures have been changing and this was last year when they came out. So I couldn't give a final total, um, but direct sort of interventions following the closure of that Houston consulate. And a lot of this stuff doesn't come into the mainstream news, partly because people are really, really worried about race issues. And I completely understand that. It's a real worry. Now, one thing I'd like to say is that I believe that the Communist Party of, Party of China manipulates the race issue manipulates ethnicity to put us in a very difficult situation when we try to call them out on their unlawful or simply illicit, i.e. not maybe technically illegal, but nevertheless unwanted and unfair information technological collection. 
one thing I wanted to say, which I think sort of puts things into perspective, is Navi, guess how many people from the Soviet Union were actually in the US as independent researchers during the Cold War? I wonder if you could get a close guess. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess it's a it's a it's a hand it was a handful, right? Because they were very concerned about sending people here, right? So if you had a hand with four fingers, you would be spot on. <laughs> there you so I said a handful, I wasn't too far off. <laughs> <laughs> you were exactly just one over. Assuming you have five fingers. Yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> four, exactly. So, and I think, you know, when I just mentioned that figure of six million people have come from the PRC to study overseas, not all have gone to the US, but um, many have, you get a sense of just what a difficult situation we are grappling with. That would be one thing that's really important to keep in mind, because to be honest, a lot of the goals of the PRC of China, of Beijing, are not really all that different from some of the goals of the Soviet Union. I mean, they really do want to change the international order. And we're seeing, you know, a resurgence of that in in Russia under Putin. We're seeing China doing a lot of things, um, you know, hacking into parliament systems, hacking into the Australian National University. I mean, there have been many cases in the US as well. This is very sort of hostile behavior, you know, I mean, the whole Taiwan issue. But But there's no consequence. That's the thing. There's no so all these things that happen. You talk about closing closing the Houston consulate. You know, I I too, I don't I don't know if you've ever had any run-ins with Chinese intelligence. I, I have. Um, I certainly have. I was a journalist in China for many years. They were constant, and frankly, they're still happening here in Germany too. Yeah, and and I I hear in the United States and in the there's no consequence. Like literally, the, they do things, and they they're not even aggressive in their sense of like you know, where the Russians would do things to me and they would want me to know, like part of it was just to let me know. Whereas the mm-hmm. Chinese do things and they just don't care if you know, because there's no consequence. There's literally, you know, um, and so I wonder like. Yeah, we are not PNGing people. No, we're not. Which, and, I mean, and, and, we're not persona non grata, which means but even if we did that, I, I don't even think that that would be enough to deter them. There's no, you know, Probably these not. things are so egregious. Um that's right. In your opinion, you, you know China well. What would actually be that pain point where these actions would, would, would elicit a consequence that would change behavior? What is that thing that would be required? That's a very tricky question. But one thing I would say is that until in our own societies we understand, until we've made that shift towards, towards seeing the challenge, if you like, from the PRC um, as a real challenge that affects all of us and should modify our behavior in many ways, like in business, like in research cooperation. That's a whole can of worms. Um, You know, until we make that shift in our own societies, it's going to be very difficult for anything, any one particular thing to happen that will really make people see China differently and be much, much, much more careful. Because the fact is that after 40 years of engagement, we're still, you know, there are still very powerful lobbies at, uh, in the U.S., in the rest, in the other democratic world, um, in other parts of the democratic world that are going hell for leather for China business. And I think that until that shifts, then I just don't, I think it's going to be really difficult. And I, But I do think that there's a kind of a, um, maybe not a full-blown decoupling, but I think that there is very much something coming that I think is going to take people by surprise. And I'm afraid I wish that we could take more defensive actions earlier in order to protect ourselves from some of this 
from some of these challenges that are coming at us as a result. Because when you, when you do know um, just how aggressively some of this stuff is happening, and now, of course, we're talking about transnational repression, which means, for example, um, Ministry of State Security or other secret service forces in China acting in the US. Uh, there was recently a fascinating case where two guys, one of them I think used to work at the Department of Homeland Security, was collaborating with these people to intimidate ethnic Chinese people from the PRC in America, people who are trying to put some distance between them and what goes on in China, all that sort of surveillance state stuff and the pressure. Um, you know, but they, you know, that the, the, the Department of Justice dealt with that case. And I thought that that was very good. Um, you know, the case, there have been so many cases, Navid, as you know, like all the, the, the cyber espionage, the, the, the loss of technology. One thing I would say that I do think is something that we can do more on to raise awareness in the US um, and other democratic countries is I think that we need more strategic communication from the government. I think we need more and better strategic communication from the government. I think that Pompeo, who was, of course, a controversial figure in some ways, but, um, uh, you know, Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, did actually begin to communicate very effectively. Uh, for example, he addressed the Association of Governors in the US, like state governors, and said, look, this is what the United Front is, this is what they're after. This is why they're leaning on you. This is why they want this business deal or they make this phone call, you know? And they're working for a foreign government in your state at your local level. And they say quite clearly that they do that. Um, but, and I think he communicated that quite well. Now, I honestly, I don't see that kind of communication continuing. And I think that there are a lot of legacy issues and that's not to take a political position because I do not have one. I mean, you can hear my accent, I'm, frankly, I'm not even American, um, but I think that there are, you know, that we need to up that communication again, that vital strategic communication between what the government does know and or different parts of the government knows and communicate it to, to civil society in an intelligent and precise manner so that businesses can work on it so that, you know, civil society can react. Well, you know, that is one way. Strategic communication is one thing, but there's another part of that, which is when you're talking about private industry, you know, private industry is always trying to raise money. And one of the concerns has been, and, you know, Didi, when, before I left the Navy, one of the last assignments I had was with Defense Innovation Unit, experiment, it was experimental at the time, now it's just DIU, Defense Innovation Unit. And we were at Innovation Command, and we worked with, the goal there was to bring, you know, cutting edge innovation to the to solve mil the military's problems. And a lot of those companies had wanted nothing to do with the U.S. government simply because the contracting cycle was far too long. So they, they were looking for money. And there's a question here um, about whether the U.S., which is you know, the CIA and other agencies, they do do this. They do make what's known as strategic investments in companies so that that company doesn't go you know, get purchased by someone like a Chinese, you know, cutout that's going to suck up their technology and talent. How much, you know, and, and, and one of the, and that's U.S. companies. But then we're talking about, you know, your reporting focused on Israeli companies. You know, a part of what China does is what any good investor does. It looks at a portfolio and it looks for talent, whether it's technology, whether it's people, and it looks to make an acquisition. How dangerous and how nefarious and how committed is this the PRC to sort of using money to acquire companies and the talent and technology that's contained within them? Oh, it's hugely um, effective at that, I would say. The investments into Israel, 97% of them were into the private technology sector, 
the ones made by uh, PRC interests. And that was a very, very deliberate move. I mean, partly, of course, it's because that is a big part of Israel's economy. Israel doesn't have, for example, things on offer like, you know, lifestyle or fashion brands. So, so like the UK does, for example. So Chinese money has bought quite a few of those in the UK. Or education, they've invested heavily in education, which is actually a whole other very interesting angle um, in, in the UK. So they're not going to do that in Israel. What are they going to go for? They're going to go for technology and they're particularly going to go for this type of military security oriented technology that Israelis are so good at as a result of um, their you know, very unique sort of history, their, their position in the Middle East, the fact that all the kids go to the military for three years and then they are often trained, highly trained there in uh, cyber. They come out of, you know, their national service and what do they do? They go to the economy and they keep these cyber skills with them and, and a lot of interesting and uh, sometimes very worrying companies like Pegasus, for example, which I would you know describe as the very much the um, very much the unwanted end of um, of this type of innovation. So yeah, China's good at that. But look, China's really, really good with money. It's it is a old commercial empire. You know, I mean, it is a very effective in business. I I was born and raised in Hong Kong, Navi. You know, I I grew up with all of this. I know how good people are at 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 doing business. At at how 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 attractive the commercial stuff is and how good. You know how much it's just part of the way of the thinking, the flexibility, the deal making. So yeah, this is this is a this is a formidable, and um, you know it's a formidable challenge because all of that is interlaced with very hard nosed um, security uh, targets. I would say on the Chinese side of national strength. Um, targets and it's incredibly difficult to unpick this because it's a one-party state there you you everything merges everything blends for example um national security law 2017 in china um article 7 says that every chinese citizen and every chinese organization so including company can be any organization um has to support assist and assist the, and cooperate with the um, organs of state security anywhere in the world, essentially. Um, Article 7 also says that every person and organization must hide the fact that they are doing so. So think for a second where that leaves any Chinese citizen or company. They have A, no protection from what the state wants them to do. And B, if they do something which is, you know, uh, covert, and are caught out, they have to, by law, deny it. <laughs> I mean, there really is no wiggle room there. And there you see, you know, I think partly why people, you know, why, why people find this, this problem really so, so very difficult to deal with. And certainly, you know, I mean, what, what can I do? I can, like, I can communicate, I can expose, I can research. Um, and I guess that's what we try to do in journalism. Absolutely. You know, I, I think part of the biggest challenge here as journalists is to sort of put in perspective why the average American should care. And, you know, I just spent several days uh, at sea on the USS Ford, which is the Navy's latest aircraft carrier. And it's, you know, chock full of technology, including mm -hmm. um, electromagnetic catapults and things like that. And watching, you know, flight operations mm -hmm. and being part of sort of very close up what happens there and seeing China's nascent sort of you know, carrier that these are pieces of technology that really do matter. I mean, I can tell this isn't a, as you said, mm -hmm. a, a political statement. It's a factual one that 
you know, if you believe that we are in this period of, of competition, that sort of Cold War redux, that deterrence is achieved by China believing that they do not have a military and, and Russia, too, and our adversaries, that they do not have a military edge. And so but that military edge is far more dependent than it was on the Cold mm. War on, on sort of technology from the private sector, technology from companies like those in yeah. Israel. And right. I, I think that part of the challenge is, as journalists, is to sort of connect those dots. At the end of the day, that is the piece that does, you know, you know, if, a, if an aircraft carrier is sailing off the, you know, contested Chinese waters and the Chinese believe rightfully or factually or rightfully or wrong that they can, that they're, you know, militarily superior, that, that impacts things. How do, how do we, it's a two-part, and it's, it, let's see, this is the last question. How do you as a journalist kind of tie these small things to the big issues? And then lastly, you know, this is a series you're doing. Is this the sort of stuff that going forward we can expect, readers can expect to sort of see you cover? Yeah, wow. I think um, the, yeah, lot, lots to, lots to um, unpack. Uh, it's fascinating. I feel like we could just talk, you know, for a long time about this, but we'll spare our listeners. Of course. Um, <laughs> so I think as a journalist, you know, what you have to do is pick the particular and then relate it to the general. Yeah. So in order to make a bigger point, you use a detail that people understand and connect to, and then you, you broaden it out, you relate it to general things. And I think this is what people do when they think uh, strategically anyway. I think you always have to keep in mind the details and also the, the general, the bigger, the overall picture, how all the parts fit together. Um, so I guess I, you know, that's sort of what I try to do. And I picked in the Israel story, um, as a lead, I picked the fact that China has, you mentioned the Thousand Talents program earlier, Navid. Of course, China has hundreds of these. Um, the Thousand Talents program is, as you well know, I'm sure, just the best known. It's got plan, it's got these government plans at province level, at city level, at district level. They're in companies, they're in research institutes. There are literally hundreds, maybe, you know, somewhere around five to six hundred. We don't really know, actually. Um, and you know, the fact that, that these are so active and are working for the government all over the world, um, targeting high-end knowledge and technology. So that's, that's the human impact for a person who may not really understand what is this outreach from somewhere in Zhejiang province? What does it mean? Why are they offering me to go to Zhejiang and to, you know, talk about something? Well, this could be the beginning of something with a very long tail, which is, you know, the, a, a, an attempt to extract knowledge, information. And there are a lot of people in the US who've actually fallen for this and have ended up in serious trouble with the law as well. So in the Israeli case, Israelis being quite security conscious, the, the person, my source was actually, they were like, yeah, I know what this is. <laughs> and, and they didn't react. But, you know, in a place where people might not be as well informed about security issues, um, they may well take it up or, you know what, they may want the money too. And, you know, everybody uh, can do with more money. So, so there you go. It's consciousness raising, trying to raise awareness, the particular example of, of an individual's choice, and then relating it to these huge plans and programs that the Communist Party has been running for for a long time. But one thing I wanted to say, you know, maybe by way of closure is, is not to, you know, in a sense, it's kind of our fault, if you like, Navi, because I feel like we have let them get away with a lot for a very, very long time. 
Um, you know, these plans didn't just come out of nowhere. These attempts to siphon off information. I think that, for example, what we haven't done is call out the um, incredible information management system, the incredible levels of censorship that exist in China. Just today, Zhao Lijian, who is a, a foreign ministry spokesman, put out a quote about Jimmy Carter's recognition of Taiwan back in 1979 when they switched diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China. And you know what? It was a manufactured quote. He left out one of the most important points in that entire agreement, which was that the US says, we, um, we acknowledge China's position that there is but one China and Taiwan is part of that. The US did not say there is but one China and Taiwan is part of that. But that's what Zhao Lijian went on TikTok to say. And he's done this little clip and that's going to go around and you're going to have a lot of kids, young kids in the US saying, wow, did we really do that? Or why are we then, you know, why did Nancy Pelosi go to Taiwan? Why are we causing grief? You know, why are we, why are we preventing them from taking from, you know, from, from somehow trying to get Taiwan back, as they call it? You know, it's disinformation. And I think that we haven't called China out on that in a very effective way. One reason, of course, being that we don't have access to their information environment. Uh, unlike the fact that they have access to ours. Um, I think it's a probably a pretty fair comment to say that, you know, from the Communist Party's point of view, what is theirs is theirs and what is ours is theirs too. And that goes for investment. We can't invest in China the way they can invest in us. It goes for information. We don't have access to their, to their news or their media or their, we, we, you know, I used to work for the New York Times. You can't even sell that. It's not available in China. It's blocked. So this is a very uneven fight, if you like. Wow, there, there's. I wish we had more time. So much to yeah, unpack same there. Here. Um, Dee, it's been a joy. Thank you, uh, and and thank you for stopping by today. Thank you so much, Navi. It was fun. Thanks again to Dee for joining us. You can find her on Twitter at dktatlow, and you can find the Covert China Project at newsweek.com/slash/covert-hyphen-china. If you like this episode of Declassified, we'd love if you could subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As a new show, it really helps us grow and make sure that we can bring the content that you want to hear. As always, I'm Naveed Jamali for Newsweek. <laughs>